Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Mad Mamluks. I'm your host, Noor Judah, and with me is my co-host, Noreen Ahmed, who, as many of you know, she is Sim's wife, and you may remember her from the Love Buzz episode. We are very fortunate and excited to be here at TDC, the Texas Dawa Convention, and in the spirit of destigmatizing mental illness, we're talking with two mental health professionals, both sisters, mashallah, and leaders in the Muslim American community. Hale Banani has her master's in clinical psychology and 20 years of experience, mashallah. She's a pioneer in combining psychology and Islam within her practice, providing Skype therapy sessions for clients from around the world. Hale hosted her own TV show on Al Fajr TV in Egypt called With Hale, and she is an international speaker and writer, mashallah. We also have Sarah Sultan. She's a licensed mental health counselor and has a degree, a master's degree in mental health counseling from Brooklyn College of the City of of the City University of New York and she graduated summa cum laude. She has experience in a variety of therapeutic interventions and has worked with several age groups including children with special needs, adolescents with emotional and behavioral issues, families undergoing difficulties and survivors of trauma and domestic violence. Mashallah. Assalamu alaikum sisters. Thank you so much for joining us. You know, this is this is an issue that um, Alhamdulillah, we're starting to hear more and more about in our community. There is a lot of emphasis on making this what has always been really an invisible uh, disease or illness uh, more prominent because it is very important and it is very common. And there's a lot of stigma, not just in the Muslim community, but around the world. Um, and we're also fortunate that we have Noreen here because this is a topic and an issue that's very near and dear to her as well. Um, some of our listeners may know that Noreen started her own nonprofit organization called SEMA, um, which provides support for families of loved ones who suffer from mental illness. So basically, um, we created a nonprofit, My Sisters and I, in memory of our mother named SEMA, and it stands for Support, Embrace, and Power Mental Health Advocacy. And sh- our mother suffered from mental illness, and we were in rural Arkansas. Mm-hmm. There was like very small Muslim community. Um, so we didn't have a lot of support growing up. And we literally felt the effects of having someone who has severe mental illness. Um, my parents got divorced. Mm-hmm. Um, we, My mother got custody of us. We were living with her who was very sick. My grandparents came. My uncle came to come support her. Um, it was very, very difficult. It must and, have been very challenging. Yeah, it was very challenging. And after she passed, you know, I tell people, I said she died 25 years ago mm-hmm. emotionally. But she died physically five years ago, mm-hmm. you know. So it was like I was grieving the death of both, you right. know. I had to go through... Um, what I had, the trauma I had gone through as a child dealing with her illness and then now her physical being, and what's the point? Like, mm-hmm. why? Why Allah? Allah, why did you do this? What was the point of her life? You know, as Muslims, we want to be a benefit to society, to our communities, but when you're mentally ill, you can't be a benefit. Mm-hmm. Right. So my sisters and I really struggled with this for a few years, and um, we're like, what can we do? Should we help divorced mothers, like single moms? Like, how can we honor her mm-hmm. in a way? And um, we came up with this idea of SEMA um, to, to support other families in the Muslim community who are going through what we went through as, you know, as children. And um, alhamdulillah, we partnered with Mohsen. Mm-hmm. And they advocate for uh, disabilities. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they also support families who are have a family member who's right. disabled. Um, so our visions aligned perfectly, subhanAllah, and everything just like started rolling really fast and Juhi Tahir was amazing and we launched in November. So we're really new. MashaAllah. <laughs> Good for you. Um, inshallah, we're going to have our support group starting up in January. But um, So th- the angle that I wanted to take today was about the effects of mental mm-hmm. illness because Yes, we talk about the stigma, and, and we are doing that. We're doing workshops to educate our communities um, on different mental illnesses. But I don't think we talk about, 
you know, if if mental illness affects one in four or five people, mm-hmm. that one person has like a network of friends and family mm-hmm. who are Absolutely. affected by their illness. That's right. Mm-hmm. And those people need support. Right. Mm-hmm. I wanted to first say that what you did by taking this tragedy and turning it into uh, a, a way of helping others, that is the most therapeutic thing you could do, <laughs> really, because I think people really struggle. People have a hard time when they face some kind of tragedy. And you can either sit with it and just feel sad for yourself, or you can, or you can take action. Mm-hmm. So the fact that you've done this, I think you've helped. Yourself, yeah. At the same time of helping others, oh yeah, absolutely, mashallah. I was thinking that that same thing. I was thinking how, you know, you were asking why, why does Allah subhanahu wa taala, you know, why would Allah subhanahu wa taala send us something so difficult? And everything like that is a test, right? And the purpose of that test is to see if we get closer to Him or if we get further away. And your example, your and your sister's example, is such a testament to how you can pass a test in such an incredible way that your mother has this huge sadaqah jariya, this ongoing charity now for her, mm-hmm. where you mentioned that somebody with mental illness can really struggles to contribute to the community. But now your mother mm-hmm. is actually contributing mm-hmm. to the community in such a huge way. And it's yeah. incredible, yeah. subhanAllah. Yeah. Yeah. Accept it from I mean, us and for her. Inshallah, yeah, Jazakallah for that. But yeah, so some of the things that um, I wanted to talk to you about is, yes, I am a child. You know, my sister, our children, as someone who's mentally, but, you know, I mentioned divorce, you know, mm-hmm. affects spouses, affects parents. I'm sure my grandparents, I went to, I actually went to a Muslim uh, support group randomly. Uh, this is before I even thought about this, you know, we had this idea. Um, my kids were in Sunday school and Mosin was having a support group in the masjid. I was like, let me just stop in and see what this is about. And I sat in the support group and the families were talking about their fears for their children. Mm. And they were saying things like, what's going to happen to our child when we pass? And I got emotional, like, oh my God, my grandparents are probably worried about my mom. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen to her? What's going to happen to us? Mm-hmm when they pass who's going to take care of her and us um and then i heard a sibling she was saying her sibling lost a movement in their arm and it was difficult for her to help her sibling with that and i was like that's my uncle mm-hmm. he was there next to my mom our whole lives taking care of her and taking care of us and and it affected him i mean Absolutely. she would call him 20 times a day while he was at work he would mm-hmm. come home and take her on long drives and listen to her just, you know, rant. And Can I ask a question about that? Because I think there's um, there's always the musing that even though we know mental illness is not literally contagious, by virtue of being in the atmosphere and environment of somebody who's severely mentally ill, do you can you develop your own mental illness? That's a there good question. Could be, there could be because of the extreme level of anxiety you could get into a state of depression because you're overwhelmed right. and you're not sure how to deal with it. You may have those thoughts that you were talking about as far as why is this happening to me? There's lots of self-pity, being overwhelmed, <laughs> anxious about the future. So you could develop those, whether it's anxiety or depression in, uh, in dealing with your family members. So how do, you, how do you balance that? How do you, on the one hand provide the support that's necessary for a loved one and not abandon them, but also safeguard your own mental health. Right. I mean, I think that that's a really important question. And I think that even even without some a family member with very intense issues, I think that the idea of self-care is not something that's often discussed in our community. Um, where there's a very uh, large expectation that you continually give without needing to recharge your own batteries. And I think that in a situation like this, it's the perfect example to show how necessary it is to to provide self-care for yourself, whether it's going through your own therapy while you're encouraging your loved one to mm-hmm. go through therapy, because that can be a huge, a lot of times the best type of self-care is to get some sort of validation, right? Where, of course, it's hard. And, and of course, you're going through a hard time. You're not a bad Muslim or a bad family member for feeling sad or for feeling angry that this burden is upon you. Mm-hmm. And so getting that type of validation can be very empowering. Doing things for yourself, seeing if you have a support system mm-hmm. so that you're not the only one that has to provide that care. Seeing what, uh, what types of support groups there are out there for your family member 
whether there are day um, day programs, you know, like within the community, they have day programs for um, people with severe mental illness, um, and uh, or even if you're you're caring for an elderly elderly family member and things like that, seeing what type of programs there are out there to give you a break, um, and so that you can take care of yourself. You can't that people say you can't pour from an empty cup, right? Yeah. Once your cup is empty, you can't. If you're not doing, if you feel like you can't do it for yourself. Do it for the person that you're caring for, because if they need you, then you need to take care of yourself That's in order right. to be there for them. And a lot of people have this uh, martyr mentality. Mm-hmm. They feel sure. that I have to just sacrifice, and it's the peak of piety to just give, give, give of myself and, and overlook my needs. Well, isar the sacrifice. Yes, you give. Yes, you make. Um, you give of your time, of your effort, but it is so <laughs> essential. It is so essential to take care of yourself because you're not doing anyone any kind of service if you run yourself down. Mm-hmm. If you have a nervous breakdown and because of all that sacrifice, then you're not going to be of service to your family or to the community. Right. So I think it's that mentality of making sure that you can give more by taking care of yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. So one of the things that, everything that you're saying is exactly like what happened in my family, the martyrdom and not not doing the self-care. And what I um, observed was we were in rural Arkansas. It was limited community, but because of the stigma and the shame mm-hmm. of my mom's illness, um, we didn't have a social. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My grandparents, mm-hmm. they had very limited social activities. Mm-hmm. We didn't invite people over. People in the community knew she was sick, and I feel like they kind of avoided us, you know? That's one of the most common things that happen when someone has mental illness, is that they start withdrawing from the community because of the stigma, because of a lack of knowledge, because people don't understand what is bipolar, what is schizophrenia, what is, and, and there's this uncertainty and fear of the unknown, mm-hmm. and there is also the family feeling that, oh my God, I'm, I'm ashamed, I don't want people to know, and they kind of hide mm-hmm. their men- whoever has a mental illness, yep. where we really need to get to a point where we come to terms with what we uh, with our family members if they're suffering and even with ourselves if we're uh, if we are going through something we need to be able to stand up and say that it's okay it's okay yeah. and not get withdrawn from the society because that leads to further depression right so I mean I think educating the Muslim community to be supportive and to not be scared right mm-hmm. is so key um, I mean I, I still see it. I think oh, we were yeah. talking about For that. For sure. I mean, I have a, a relative who is my age. She's a young woman um, in her early 30s who we discovered with time suffers from severe schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And um, by virtue of her struggle, her entire family, similar to what Noreen's family went through, is kind of ostracized and pushed into the periphery by the Muslim community. And... Her, she has two uh, brothers who, alhamdulillah, they're married and, you know, they have their own lives. But she has a younger sister mm-hmm. who would love to get married. But because of the stigma surrounding the family is finding it very, very difficult. So I'm, I'm curious to hear if you have any sort of insight into that dynamic and that unfortunate situation. Well, you know, um, going along with with what you were saying um, about the the stigma associated with it, I think that that also really plays a role in the burden that a family takes on. Because if somebody is diagnosed with cancer, right, and there's there are a lot of genetic bases bases to cancer, right, but it doesn't usually influence a person's decision to marry into that family. If somebody has been diagnosed with cancer, that family gets meal trains program. You know, like you know, the meals are t- taken care of for the family. There, there are a lot of visitors, people come into the home, and there's no fear associated with that because it's considered a physical illness, right? Once there's something invisible, right, that apparently people can't see, they have no idea how to react to it. They have no idea how to interact with it, right, where they're afraid to say the wrong thing. They're afraid to be offensive. They're afraid of being associated with that family. And um, and it really becomes an issue, you know, where, yes, the family withdraws, but also you're absolutely right that the community withdraws from them as well. 
And I think that with regards to something like this that you're talking about with your friend situation, it's incredibly difficult. And I've known so many clients who have hidden so many of their their issues because they're so worried for their their siblings, their younger siblings. Like if they have older siblings, they're already married, then okay, at least the burden is off of my shoulders. I'm not going to ruin their lives. There's such it's such an incredibly difficult burden to feel like is my something outside of my control that I have and it's not within my control is that going to ruin the lives of the people that I love and it's I mean that in and of itself is going to make their recovery process so much more difficult right because they're holding on to guilt um and uh you know unfortunately I feel like there's no easy solution to a situation like that I would say uh, my first suggestion for something like that is absolutely dot right because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is capable of anything right right Absolutely. and sometimes the unlikeliest people pair up yes. and it's the most beautiful marriage and what she needs in that situation is somebody who's going to be understanding that she has a family member who has this and who's yes. not going to be afraid of that because mm-hmm. if she were to get married and this person got married under the you know assumption that there was you know that there was no mental illness in her family and found out later that could have caused problems and that, that does you know, and it a does. lot of times yeah. you find that people feel like they were cheated mm-hmm. i've had clients right. who get married and uh, they actually they uh, <coughs> parents did not share the mental illness of their daughter like let's say the daughter had bipolar they didn't tell him and now he just he really feels like he was cheated because mm-hmm. his life has turned upside down and um, and you know we really have to be honest i think in in all mm-hmm. situations especially for marriage you have to be very frank and put all your cards on the table and let people know and then let them decide whether they're ready if they have the capability to accept such right. a lifestyle. Right. Mm-hmm. I think another important thing um, is finding like-minded people and really putting physically putting yourself in environments where you're around people who are seeking answers right. to the questions mm-hmm. that you're so looking maybe support for. Support groups. Yeah, exactly. Maybe going to uh, places where you're getting educated. But places like, let's say, Mohsen. Right. If you have mm-hmm. individuals that meet in that environment, they're going to be so much more empathetic. And I've oh, seen yeah. this happen where they just understand. They know what it's like to have a parent with a mental illness. Yeah. They know mm-hmm. what it's like. And, and then they, they support one another rather than constantly blaming, constantly feeling like... Um, resentment towards that person yeah absolutely uh, just with this I mean okay so I went to that Mohsen support group right so I was quiet I was listening I would get a little cheery because I'm thinking about my mom's illness which is different than a disability but it's in a sense I mean a mental disability she was disabled in the sense she couldn't even function she right. wasn't cooking cleaning taking care of us emotionally just completely gone so anyway, I didn't say a word throughout the support group. And then afterwards, I went up to Juhi and I said, um, you know, I hope it's okay I was here. Um, I don't have a, anyone in my family who's disabled. And as the words started coming out, you know, my mother had mental illness. The emotions I just the, Yeah, because we hid it for so right. long. And to say it out loud publicly to a stranger oh. was so difficult. Mm-hmm. And... Even though she had passed, but, you know, it was it was still, you know, we hit it. It was so suppressed. And since we come out with SEMA and we're talking about it and we're telling people, people are approaching us and saying, my mother has this, my father has this, my sibling has it, you know. And they're, they're open to t- talking about it. And it's like, oh, my God, like, it's these are Muslims. It's so therapeutic to share with others what you're going through. Yeah. And I find that a lot of times in therapy, uh, many people have hidden whatever secret it is. And sometimes a woman in her 50s will tell me that this is, you are the first person that I'm sharing this with. Mm-hmm. And she is overwhelmed with emotions, start crying, because it's like it's something that they have... It, you know, just hiding for so long. And so I think the fact of sharing with others, telling people what you're going through and feeling that you're not alone. Mm-hmm. I think that is one of the hardest thing. Whenever anyone is being tested, they feel like they're all alone. But when you mm-hmm. come to a group like that and you see that other people are ha- have similar issues, you're not alone. You're not strange. This is very normal. Yes. That gives you that validation that you need. Right. 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 
And it's so, also, sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was also going to say it's so empowering too because what you're doing when you do that is you change the narrative, right? Where you are creating this this um, pathway for people to to feel like, well, she's being really brave, and she has her own life, and she's successful. And she's shared this, so maybe I can too, right? And you pave the way for, for people to be able to, and that, that helps to alleviate the stigma too. So it's very powerful. Right. Inshallah. I actually, while working on this uh, STEMA project, um, it, was, it was emotionally taxing mm-hmm. um, for my sisters and I. I mean, we'd have moments just, um, you know, remembering things and getting emotional, and it was just very draining. And... So I was like, you know what, I need, I'm going to go to a therapist. Mm-hmm. Good. Uh, you know, let me. Good job. We, we, <laughs> we, we cheer you we on. <laughs> Two thumbs up. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I went to the therapist and uh, I told her, I was like, yeah, we're working on this project. She was so excited. And she was like, so tell me about yourself. And I was like, yeah, I'm married. I have four children. I've been married 16 years. I work in finance. I'm, you know, doing all this stuff, whatever. I Girl Scouts, you know, whatever. And then, um, you know, we were good students and stuff she was like why are you here <laughs> you're great you know and I was like okay I'm you know alhamdulillah you know but um as I started telling her more she was like what you went through the theme I keep seeing in your life is you are a story of resilience mm-hmm. and she's like basically going okay so this kind of goes into some um of the effects of mm-hmm. what we went through. Um, there was um, a lot of neglect. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Take your time. Take your time. It's, it's a very emotional... And, you know, just because you're, you're strong doesn't mean that the emotions are not going to become overwhelming mm-hmm. because a lot of times the way we cope is by compartmentalizing either suppressing or compartmentalizing and I think that's probably what you did and but then when you start talking about it the emotion is like a volcano absolutely um, yeah. absolutely um, there was an article written uh, in um, the New York Times by a Muslim Pakistani woman mm. about her parent with mental illness and uh, I read it this is when SEMA was still just an idea. Mm-hmm. We hadn't even approached Mosin with it yet. And um, I was driving home and I pulled over and I was just crying. Oh. I was like, this is, this is my story. We're Pakistani Americans in the 80s. And, and so I tweeted at her and I said, when I go home, I'm going to uh, write my story and send it to you. And I had never written my story. Mm. And so I typed it out. It took me like an hour and a half. We all like parents got married here da, 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 da. everything until she died and uh, I called my husband over and I said I need you to put your phone down and I need you to just listen to me read my story and there were I mean he knows she's, he's not my mom he knows she's sick whatever but there were details that he didn't mm, know right. and uh, some of the trauma that we saw and um, when I read it uh you know, I cried a lot, and it was very, it was very relieving. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was one paragraph that really would get to me, and it was basically when I was a teenager. So here, two things: we weren't told what she really had. I didn't they know didn't when give she gave you the diagnosis. My grandparents and uncle they chose didn't, not to. Chose not didn't to tell it. us. The true diagnosis. Why was that? Why did they hide that they, from you guys? They want, a lot of Middle Eastern families do that. They feel like they want to. Sh- they don't want to disclose what's going on. They feel that maybe not putting a. They don't want a label on it. Mm-hmm. A lot of times that label is very frightening for them because they're very aware of the stigma that mm-hmm. is there and they don't want the stigma. So they just, a lot of times people will have a mental illness, but the family will not know the diagnosis. Yeah. There's yeah. also there's also a worry, I think, that they're going to be burdening the children with this diagnosis, right? Mm. Where they they think of it as a burden on this child. Like, okay, they know that something's off with their mom. 
But as long as they don't know exactly what it is, it's not going to weigh as heavily on them. Mm-hmm. But what a lot of times they don't realize is knowledge can be very powerful. Yeah, and, absolutely. And it, gives, and it gives a certain degree, like we keep talking about validation, right? That, okay, this is a real thing. Mm-hmm. And this my mother fits these criteria just like mm-hmm. so many thousands and millions of other people mm-hmm. do. So we're not alone in this. Mm-hmm. She's not alone in this. Mm-hmm. And there are resources, you know? Yep. Um, so I think that both, you know, both per, both perspectives play a role in that. Yeah. This is a this is certainly a topic where ignorance is not bliss. No. Not, yeah. at, not at all. <laughs> yeah. It is actually it leads to destruction. Absolutely, oh, absolutely. It does because you become so overwhelmed. Many times when I'm even telling that I, um, I'm telling some of my clients about the diagnosis that they have. I had one client. It was interesting. She said, "You know, as I read." the symptom yeah. she's like I both cried but I also I felt like it fit like a glove mm. she's like I finally understood yes. why I was feeling the way I did yep. because when there's ambiguity when you're overwhelmed you're like what's wrong with mm-hmm. me that's so overwhelming yes. but yes. once you know okay it's like here are the problems these are the symptoms and this is the way so you treat it right. the solution then it's more contained Absolutely. and you're no longer in this state of confusion there's closure yes. right yes. yeah so for us we didn't know and i was um a teenager and all we were told was she's depressed because of the divorce oh, oh. no so, That's so overwhelming yes. for you. And I, she got divorced when I was four, and now I'm a teenager. Mm-hmm. And was it because of the mental illness, the divorce? Uh, uh, yeah, it basically. was. Okay. He, my father didn't recognize. I okay. mean, she he did take her for like postpartum mm-hmm. depression um, treatment, but she had more than that, and I don't think he realized. And so, anyway, well, you know, Alona was best why things happened the way they did. But anyway, uh-huh. so. Um, so I'm a teenager and I'm so angry mm-hmm. at her mm-hmm. and uh, like get over it like yeah. what is what's wrong it's been with 10 you years. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, stop yeah. snap out of it stop being depressed be here look at me mm-hmm. I'm right here oh, I, yeah. isn't this enough to be happy about oh. and um, you know and she like I said she wasn't functioning she didn't come to you know basketball games mm-hmm. she didn't come to parent teacher conferences she she was just a shell, mm-hmm. you know. She was, so she was very affectionate, very affectionate, I'm beautiful, for beautiful yeah. woman. Loved, I'm you know, makeup and fashion and all those things. But, you know, for but the not most, high functioning. Not yeah. high functioning. I mean, a lot of time spent in bed, crying, mm. asking just, us um, to help her and we're kids. We yeah. don't know how to help her. That's a um, huge burden. Yeah, absolutely. yeah. The parentified child. I mean, we're exactly always like getting on to her like stop walking in front of the tv turning on and off the light you know whatever Mm -hmm. you know all these things just um because she was just in her own world Mm -hmm. um you suffer for them and you suffer with them at the same time now this this raises another question how do we deal with the causes of or or the cases of parentified children Mm-hmm. How do we help avoid that? Because, you know, Noreen comes from a South Asian background. I'm Middle Eastern, but I we see it in both our cultures where even when there aren't cases of mental illness, children are forced to grow up quickly um, and to take on these responsibilities that may not necessarily be appropriate for their age. You know, can I interject? <sighs> yeah. So I was thinking about this last night. I don't have a good female role model mm-hmm. I didn't have one growing up um, yes my father remarried but we only saw him and my stepmom like four days a month mm-hmm. and then my grandmother was just a grandma like she yeah. cooked and fed us and that, you know. but I didn't have like a strong good female um, you know role model and as a mother myself I really struggle with you know I We were packing our own lunches, doing our own laundry, cleaning our own rooms, you know, from a very young age. And I'm kind of training my kids to be the same way because that's all I know. Well, you see, 
there's a difference between teaching responsibility and being responsible for your parents. Mm -hmm. okay. And when you are teaching like you are now with your kids, that's very healthy. Okay. I, I train my kids to take care of themselves, do their laundry, mm -hmm. do all of these things. And it's a, it's an excellent training and more parents need to do that. Yeah. But when you're in a situation where your parents are not capable and you feel like you have to do their job, that creates a burden. That that can really affect the way they view themselves, the way they view their children, their parents, and it can it can totally affect their childhood because mm -hmm. many many individuals who go through things such as yourself, they feel like, well, I, I didn't really get a chance to be a kid. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. There is that sense of responsibility from very early on. Yeah. So you really need to distinguish between teaching responsibility and then being responsible for your parents. Yeah, right. Yeah. Because you know, in 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 the one of the main differences in that circumstance is, as a parent, I can gauge how much my kids are capable of handling. Right. Mm -hmm. In your situation, your mother couldn't gauge that, and you had to take on a lot more than realistically you were capable. Right. But it wasn't. Um, it wasn't a healthy level of capability. You know, it was it was more if this doesn't get done by me, it's not going to get done at all. Mm -hmm. So there was this this you mentioned the word neglect, right? And there was this lack of feeling cared for. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that's a need that children have. They yeah. need to feel that sense of stability where they they know that you know, whatever happens, there's going to be somebody that's there to take care of me. And it sounds like that, those feelings of resent, you know, the resentful feelings that bubbled up in your teenage years were, all, you know, due to a, a lot of that, where I had to take on the responsibilities to take care of my mom, which were, and because you weren't, you weren't told why this, yeah. this was mm -hmm. on you, that built up that feeling of resentment. You couldn't be empathetic towards your mom, right? Mm -hmm. And because you didn't know, you thought, this is something where 10 years ago you got a divorce, right? I should be enough to make you happy. Mm. So there's this feeling, there's this feeling like of inadequacy. What's, exactly. What's well. wrong with me that I can't make my mom happy. If you knew, right, that there was this brain chemistry that was happening, that was beyond your control, beyond her control, you then the... yeah, exactly. You would accept it, but also you would accept, you would have been able to accept what she was capable of right. at that point. So it's it's not on you. It's not on her, yeah, subhanallah. And um, but but yeah, that parentified role. There's so much role reversal oh, when yeah. you know when when there's mental illness or physical illness in the family, where exactly like um, Sister Hada was saying that that you don't get a chance to be a child, and that's a that's a heavy burden. Yeah, we were making our own doctor's appointments. Oh, so we would write our notes just for school and just have her sign it. Mm. No, she she had no idea what. Was I will like. say though, I I did that too, not because my mother <laughs> suffered from mental illness but I'm it, it goes back to just culture I think like my parents English was their second language so we we had to take the lead in in a lot of yeah. things but um and, and that's not to invalidate your well, experience we have grandparents we have my uncle there there were other adults right, there, right 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 but we were they were just focused on my mom mm. and it was like we had to fend for ourselves figure it out figure our on own. your own subhanallah yeah. one of the ways to cope with something like this is to ask what good came out of this? Mm -hmm. What can I learn from this? Mm -hmm. What is um, what is what are the lessons? Mm -hmm. And I think um, a lot of times we focus on those negative things, and we focus on the fact of what what I didn't have and how how much pressure was on me. But as soon as you form the question in that positive way of what did I get out of it, I find that clients start generating a long list of benefits yeah. right and I think you can mention it right yeah. now mm -hmm. you would not be the person that you yeah. are today yeah. if mm -hmm. you didn't go through that right. you're stronger more resilient mashallah yeah. uh, more capable and yeah. responsible mm -hmm. yeah. and and I think that we need to focus on those things yeah. because when we focus on the fact that I was neglected I didn't get what I yeah. wanted then we're always feeling like there was there was a loss but you gained Right. through this tragedy, subhanAllah. And actually, my therapist said, we were all, mashallah, top of our class. Mashallah. And um, she said, I'm sure at work you're very focused, like when you're in the zone. And so I was like, yeah, actually I am. She's like, because as a child, you had to tune out mm -hmm. all the noise that was happening around mashallah, you right. and focus on something. And I will say, you know, I, I know that you're worried, Noreen, about this trickling down in some way to your children but I have said it 
over and over and over again to both Noreen and Tim, I have never met such amazing children. And I, I was a teacher of middle and high school mm-hmm. students, and I'm an assistant principal of a preschool now, and mashallah, she is an amazing mom. And I'm not just saying that, you know, to toot her horn. Um, so there's a tremendous deal of good that has come out of your experience, for sure. To take your experience and to channel it in such a positive way that's impressive because many people have this whether it's a resentment that they feel or anger or frustration like I didn't have this and they may not give it to their kids I think the healthiest way to do it is to say you know what I want to give my kids what I didn't have Mm -hmm. and when you can do that then it's just it's amazing that's really it takes a lot of Mm -hmm. strength of character and iman to give of what you didn't receive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so mashallah for and also, that. And also like giving from what you did receive too, right? Where you're, you're talking about how you're trying to train your children to be responsible mm-hmm. now because you've noticed how that has positively impacted your life right now. And so some a question that I often ask, you know, myself and my clients is, if I hadn't gone through what I went through, what would be missing from my life right now, right? Like what characteristics would be missing from myself Thank you. <laughs> what characteristics would be missing from myself that wouldn't, you know, that 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 wouldn't be here if I hadn't gone through the experience that I went through? Exactly. And it, yeah, and it, it it's uh, yeah, yeah, very that's, powerful, Subhanallah. Different way to look at it. So some other questions I had because we've been approached by people. We had one father who's sick. So this comes down to the breakdown of families. <coughs> we had a father who is himself sick come to us and tell us that he's afraid of losing his kids because they're having Mm -hmm. a hard time coping with his illness. Mm -hmm. Um, We had a mother come to us. um, Her daughter is in her 20s and she's presenting a lot of schizoaffective disorders. And she was crying and saying, I don't know what to do with her. She's violent. (coughs) So how... How we see this happening in the Muslim community that families are being affected and is their families are breaking apart. Children, um, parents, parents are having to kick out their kids because you know they're physically harming the parents, and the parents are old and can't cope. Like, what as a Muslim community or as Muslims can we do to help these families not fall apart? Mm-hmm. How do you guys approach this when you see this in your uh, clinics? Well, I think that one one example that I always find to be really powerful, I think that there's, because there's a stigma about mental illness, there's a a huge stigma about treatment for mental illness. Mm -hmm. And so encouraging people to still seek treatment is difficult. And a lot of times they want a Muslim counselor. They worry about going into the waiting room at a Muslim counselor's office. Who are they going to see? Who's going to see them walk in? All of these things. Mm. And that's the example, right? That's why online therapy is so beneficial because you don't have to. It's more private. And it's all anonymous, right? Yeah. 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 And there are actually even like we use, like there's, there are other apps too that we can use online too and, and everything. And it's, it's very helpful. Alhamdulillah. And, now, do you recommend that in a family uh, where there is a mental illness should, first of all, I think everybody in the world should have a therapist, whether mm-hmm. you have a mental illness or not, because if you think about it, it's just an objective third party and we're it, all human it's just beings. It's for growth. Yeah, it's yeah. for growth. Mm-hmm. Um, do you recommend that the entire family see the same therapist so that the, there's one person who has insight into the full scope and and sort of scene that is taking place? Or is it better that members of the family see their own therapists? That's a good question. I, 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 go ahead. I want to hear you. I have a, I have a certain, there are different opinions on this. So go ahead. I think that uh, seeing the same therapist is very effective because you get the dynamics, you understand where each person is coming from and, uh, and then seeing them all together as well and seeing how that, how the dynamic of the relationship works is much more effective. And then you have the same approach with the individuals because sometimes uh, I, I see this with even marriage counseling. If you have different approaches with different therapists, they may be undoing what you're trying to build. Right. right? So it, from my perspective and from the experience I've had, it's very effective to work with the same therapist and to understand each person and be able to help get them all on the same page. 
You may have a different perspective. <laughs> so I have uh, somewhat of the same perspective and a slightly different where um, I, I go personally, I go on a case by case basis. So if I'm working with um, an individual and our primary intent is individual therapy and I work with them, um, I might like to see their parents, for example, um, if we're doing family therapy to help them as a form of treatment for that individual. That person is my primary client and um, as and, and to help my primary client to develop as much as possible, I can then help their family to help them in their treatment, right? Um, and in the same thing goes for marriage counseling. If I have somebody I'm working with, it, it, if I'm working with a couple, I focus on the couple and the mm -hmm. marriage. And if I'm working with an individual, I focus on the individual. And I find that if I'm focusing on the individual and then I bring in another individual and I'm focusing on that individual, sometimes there's some bias. I'm a human being, right? Mm -hmm. And I have, a, you know, I, I'm an advocate for my primary client. Right. And so sometimes I feel like, okay, if, you know, for example, in an abusive situation in a marriage, the wife comes to me, I can't be unbiased with her husband. I know myself, I know my capabilities, and I know I cannot be unbiased with her husband. Mm. And so I recommend that he gets his own individual therapist, but I can help him in conjunction with her therapy, mm. right? So I can have a couple of sessions with him to say, okay, this is what's going on. Here are ways that you can you can help to mend this relationship according to the way that I've, you know, w my work with your wife. But, but as an individual therapist for him, I find it difficult personally to maintain their confidentiality, not share certain things. It's difficult to navigate. So in situations like that, do you find yourself collaborating with other therapists? Yes. So Hala is one. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and you know, alhamdulillah, we have, we, there's a growing network of Muslim therapists out there. And, um, and I think it's wonderful for us to all support one another in the work that we do. And it's, um, and you know, to, to, to build those professional, those professional lines and everything. And a lot of times, you know, the Muslim community is so interlinked that sometimes a client will want to come to you and you're like, well, I know your family. I can't. So you're able to recommend mm -hmm. them to another therapist. So it's really helpful to have those, um, those, those links. Alhamdulillah. Yeah. yeah. So we talked about um, getting treatment for the person who's sick. What do you do when the person who's sick is in denial mm -hmm. and doesn't want to get treatment? How do you how how are families supposed to help them get treatment? Hala mentioned that in her in her lecture yesterday at TDC oh, about man. we missed that one. You missed that one. <laughs> the, the, we were the recording. The language so right, <laughs> right, right. That you have to want to change. Right, the person has got to want to change because if not, it is so difficult. Mm -hmm. It's so difficult to try to get them to understand. The best way that I can recommend is educating them, maybe giving them articles, maybe videos, maybe asking them about the quality of their life, okay? okay? Saying, how do you feel? And obviously when someone's going through mental illness, they're overwhelmed, they're sad, they're depressed, they're anxious, and you can tell them that you don't have to live with this. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times we just accept. And as Muslims, a lot of times we have that learned uh learned helplessness right mm -hmm. there's this feeling of qadr Allah ma shafa, like mm -hmm. we okay this is my qadr let me accept it but that doesn't mean that you don't do something about it you don't take action right because if anybody had let's say pneumonia or a heart disease or a brain tumor they wouldn't just sit there and say Absolutely. no you go to the best doctors you will seek treatment unless you're a stubborn arab man and then yeah, yeah. yeah it's <laughs> my like, body is strong enough yeah, to handle yeah, yeah. this on its That's own my right? dad. Yeah. but does that not beg the question when it comes to very severe mental illness cases where their their mental capacity they That's don't different. have the wherewithal to even yes. understand then you have to take action gotcha. right so there is there is a certain point where you mm -hmm. can educate you can encourage you can kind of use logic right. and say you you can have a much better life and i think it's really important to address a lot of the stigma in care mm -hmm. um in that a lot of times they feel it's only medication people are totally sometimes against getting medication right. and there's cognitive behavioral therapy where in a lot of situations where that can be enough mm -hmm. to make that improvement right. so but then there are cases where someone is not capable of making a decision yeah. and then the family is going to have to make that mm -hmm. difficult decision to seek help for the per mm -hmm. person especially if they're suicidal 
Yes. Yeah. There's, there are some cases I've had where um, I had a client in Malaysia and the child was, uh, the daughter, she was in her early 20s. She was suicidal, but she was completely in denial. And, and the parents had to put her in a hospital in a psychiatric care for about 10 days. And that was the best thing sure. that they did for her sure. because then she got the treatment that she needed. And sometimes it's against their will. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a struggle. Sometimes there is resentment. But then at the end, they get the help that they need. Yeah, absolutely. In, in terms of those treatments, um, could you talk just a little bit about the difference between cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy and when each of those uh, approaches is appropriate? Right. The dialectical behavior therapy is used mainly, it was actually introduced for borderline personality. Mm -hmm. I and see. it's very effective because they saw that cognitive behavioral therapy was not as effective. And so they started using that. And... <clears throat> And it's, it's very effective in working with them. The cognitive behavioral therapy works with all different cases. Mm -hmm. And it's actually amazingly effective, mashallah. Mm -hmm. So I find that you It's can, a starting point. It is. Yeah. For sure. It okay. Is. And dialectical behavioral therapy also has uh, a lot more of an emphasis kind of on the impact of like um, on relationships in terms of gaining an understanding of the impact that your behavior has on others, um, which is very helpful in, in cases of borderline personality yeah. disorder, but also in general. I think that, that all, you know, all, and all of us could use a little bit of you know, those, those, uh, those methods. But I wanted to just, um, piggyback a little bit on what, uh, sister Hala was saying where, um, the, if, if you have a family member, whoever says that they want to hurt themselves or hurt other people, you call emergency mental mm -hmm. health services mm -hmm. in your area, or you call 911. That is, mm -hmm. you know, absolutely the safest thing to do. And then also if they are resistant to getting treatment and you're, you know, you're a Muslim, your family, uh, your, your parent, your family member is a Muslim. I think helping them to realize that when the prophet Sallam first received revelation from Jibril, right? From the angel Jibril in the cave of Hira, he thought he was going crazy. Right. And he thought that mentally there's something off. Mm -hmm. And what did he do? He sought counsel from his wife. Right. Absolutely. And then he sought counsel from somebody else. Right. They like they mm -hmm. they they consulted with someone. If it was good enough for the Prophet Muhammad, so then yes. it's good enough for us. Oh, yeah. Right. And so I think that a lot of times there's this idea of like there's this stigma of seeking treatment. We have to hide our sins. This is not a sin. Mental illness is not a sin. It's mm -hmm. a test from Allah. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and and helping yourself through it with that intention is something so praiseworthy in the eyes of Allah. And so we have to we have to realize that. And so I'm you so know. glad you bring this up because I have a client, she's in Saudi Arabia, and she tells me, I listened to the sheikh, and he said that you should not complain to anyone other than Allah. Mm. And every time I come for therapy, I feel guilty. I feel that I am, I am complaining to other than Allah. And, and I, you know, we have to understand that it's so different because in the Quran it says, and ask the people of knowledge if you do not know. So we need to realize that not only is this okay, not only is this not a sin, it's encouraged. It's mm -hmm. encouraged for us to seek that Absolutely. help. Absolutely. So every time I see her and she's like, I listen to the sheikh, I'm like, oh no. <laughs> what, what did he, he say this time? time? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Our sheikhs, you bring a good point. Our sheikhs, our imams, they need to all be educated in family counseling or therapy mm -hmm. or whatever. I feel like if they could be a psychiatrist, psychologist, and a sheikh and imam. Well, they're expected like the to be, though, right? They're expected to be that. Like, a lot of people, the first step that they take is to go and talk to their imam about their psychological exactly. problems. And a lot of them are not equipped to handle it. Some of them, alhamdulillah, more and more now are referring to, you know, to, to Muslim counselors, which is excellent to, to, to develop that relationship. But it's such a big burden on them. And I think... Um, a lot of people kind of say mean things about the imams, that, you know, like in general, like, you know, they have no place to be doing this. But a lot of times they don't know what else to do except to try and help. That's what they're trying they're to the do. First people. Exactly. They're the first, they're the first responders. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. What I find is that the awareness has really increased. Like I know 25 years ago when in, when I went into the field of psychology, uh, many people were against the field completely, even many of the shiuch. And now those same shiuch after 20 years have evolved and see the importance of mental health. And to the point that, um, alhamdulillah, like in uh, in the Qalam Institute, Sheikh mm -hmm. Abdul Nasser Jangda has asked me to develop a curriculum to train the imams train the imams yeah. on counseling because that is their primary role oh my yep. people will go to the mm -hmm. imams because they don't 
honestly it's really about not just the stigma but they don't want to pay the money right it's just like i want free help Mm -hmm. and so there um i work with them in training them on how to be that uh, the first line of the responders yeah. how right. to because they're like the paramedics mm-hmm. right yeah. they're on the scene yeah. they have to do the right things Absolutely. and then Absolutely. get them yeah. to a professional yeah. but it's it's really necessary mm-hmm. because if they don't many times they don't have the training and they end up maybe doing and saying things that is detrimental right. to their progress. And I think a lot of times people go to imams first because they think it's an iman issue. Iman, it's something right. like Faith. a faith-based issue. And so they think that the imam will be able to solve it mm-hmm. for them. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. This has been so very, very helpful. And I know we're just scratching the surface on this topic. Inshallah, we'll be uh, able to revisit this again in the near future. But in line with the... Uh, the importance of having support out there for our community. Noreen, is there anything on the SEMA website, a list of Muslim therapists or resources that listeners can access? Yeah, so we have been working with Muslim. Muslim already has a directory of um, licensed uh, professionals, but it's not very robust. We're trying to make it searchable so people can pick a state and find all the Beautiful. therapists in that state. Because this is national. Muslim is national. Mm-hmm. SEMA will be national with them, inshallah. So, um, yeah, so we will definitely um, would love to get, you know, your information and add you to the database free. Um, And your idea about um, the writing up like a khutbah. So one of the things we were saying, we're like, okay, we can do these support groups in big cities like Houston and Chicago and New York. And. But what about the small cities like we were in, in Arkansas? We didn't have a big community. Well, we can do these khutbahs for the imams, at least, for those small masjids. Maybe they can't have these big support groups because people are so um, more fearful to come out and show, you know, what's going on. But having those kinds of resources are one of the ideas that we have for SEMA, inshallah. So we'd love to collaborate with you. Inshallah. Well, good job with what you're doing. And it was a pleasure discussing this with both of us. Thank you both. Absolutely. It was a privilege to be here. Thank you so very much. You can schedule appointments with Hale or Sarah at halebanani.com. That's H-A-L-E-H-B-A-N-A-N-I.com. Both ladies are also available on social media, and you can also check out the links in this episode's description. And for our listeners, uh, don't forget to follow us on uh, Twitter and like us on Facebook. And don't forget to visit us at themadmemlukes.com and donate to us uh, Every dollar, every bit helps us in being able to come out to events like this and speak with amazing members of our community. Um, If you have any questions, comments, or uh, follow-up regarding anything our sisters have said today, email us at themadmemlukes at gmail.com. For my co-host, Noreen, and the Mad Memlukes, I'm Noor Jude. Thanks so much for listening. Salaam alaikum.